Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 385. This program is dedicated in loving memory by Yaakov ben Shabtai, Yorzeit on the 17th of Tevis, Tovshin Ayin Dalad, eight years ago. It's dedicated by Fivish and Tamar Pevsner. So we're now in the second week of, par- of Sefer Shmais, Parshas Ve'era, and it's also in two days will be Chovdala Tevis, the 209th yard site of the Alter Rebbe, Tovkufayin Gimel, and now we're in Tovshin Beis. So let's begin, as we always do, speaking about these uh, topics and their relevance to our lives in the spirit of Chassidus applied. Here's a good opportunity. Those of you that are not familiar with this program, or if you are, always good to remind you, we have a dedicated website called chassidusapplied.com where you can submit any question completely anonymously. Nothing is off limits, nothing is taboo, and it will be addressed. Just we have many questions, so it may take a little longer than I'd like but everything will be addressed. There you can also find an uh, array of resources applying Chassidus to our lives. Firstly, all the archives of the previous 384 programs. It's almost nine years now. The essays and creative submissions of the contest, the My Life Chassidus Applied contest, as well as materials on Ayin Beis and on Samarvov and other Hasidic discourses, including, if you'd like to join, a daily class that I actually give live on YouTube and Zoom every morning, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time, on Sundays, 10.30, and you can find all that information at chassidusapplied.com. So, let's begin with Pashas Ve'era, and then we'll go to Chavdal Tevis. So Pasha Ve'eda, as I said, is the second chapter. We're in the throes, in the darkest moments of Jewish history when the Jews are in bondage, enslaved by the Egyptians, cruel labor, tortured, as the Torah elaborates. At the end of last chapter, it talks about how Moshe Rabbeinu, who was chosen by God now in the last chapter, to go to Pare, confront him, and free the Jews. So Meshe Rabbeinu, when he sees, he sees the, the, the painstaking and the horrible treatment of the Jewish people, he cries out to God, Lama la'am hazeh. Why are you doing evil? Cruelty to these people. He blames God. Fari was doing it. Pari and his people were doing it. And yet he blames God. And he's admonished for it. He's rebuked by God. He says, the others did not come with such complaints to me. And yet, the opening of this chapter, in a way God rewards him after rebuking him. Because faith is not about passive acceptance of our circumstances. It's about a partnership. And we challenge God, the same God that tells us that goodness should prevail, that goodness will be rewarded, that I want goodness and kindness in this world. So we have the ability and the right to say to Hashem, you are the one that created this world. You created it for a purpose. 
And when something's not working according to that purpose, at least revealed to us, it's expected of us to pray. That's what prayer is about. God forbid someone's in a hospital and you say, you know what, God decreed. There's nothing we should do. Just sit around. No, Hashem wants us to pray. Say, so why did he do it in the first place? We don't know, the, we don't know God's mysterious ways. But one thing is for sure, he wants a partnership here. The whole Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, the whole story in the Torah about Moshe Rabbeinu marching up on the mountain to challenge Hashem, to challenge God, to forgive the people after the building of the golden calf is the ultimate demonstration of this statement. So the great people like Avram Avinu, people of faith, men and women of faith, it's not passive, they sit around and say, oh, God said so, great. When God is destroying the wicked city of Zdoim, Avram says to God, the judge of the universe people will say is not doing justice. It's a wicked city, but maybe there's a righteous person. Moshe Rabbeinu sees cruelty. Yes, of course, it was through the hands of Pharaoh and his, and his, and his Egyptians, and they deserve their punishment. But ultimately, God allowed it. And more than that, God decreed that the Jews be there. So there's a discussion. The Rambam, the Raven, Hilchus Tshuva, how could you punish the Egyptians when God told Avramavinu, Brisbane, Absorim, during the covenant, that they will be in a land not their own, your children. So the, the, the different the, 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 one says that they went more than was expected, the Egyptians. And secondly, God didn't say which Egyptian. Each one had pchira. He said just the idea that they'll be there. And the second answer, that they did more than they should have done in oppressing the Jews. But regardless, Moshe goes straight to the source, God. And he's rebuked. And yet, we come to the beginning of this chapter, Ve'era. And what do you have? Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, I appear to the others, but to them I never showed them. I did not reveal my core name, my essential personality, so to speak. Only Shem Shaddai. I only revealed to them my name, Shem Shaddai. As Chassidus explains, Shaddai is the divine that connects to Dai, to the creation. But Shem Havai, Shem Ha'etzim, Shem Ha'mafurah, Shem Ha'meyuchad. That divine name, the tetragrammaton of the Yud Kevavke, the Shema Mafirish, that only name mentioned by the Kayan God, the high priest in the Holy of Holies, that I will reveal to you. But you just rebuked Moshe. Why did he reveal to him Shema Vaya? Because at the end of the day, there's two parts here. Say the Rishtalshlis and the structure of the cosmic order, there's, there's a certain system. But Moshe Rabbeinu went deeper. He cried out to God in pain and anguish. So on one hand, yes, it's somewhat of a chutzpah, if you wish, but it's a shtuz de gedusha, it's a positive chutzpah. It ultimately evokes from God that says, you're right. I will reveal to you a, a deeper dimension of myself. And that dimension is revealed explicitly in pain and in darkness. And the whole process of Golos Mitzrayim as painful as it was, was to reveal a deeper dimension of the truth. This would forge the Jewish people into a nation and prepare them to receive the Torah, kur habarzal, like a smelting pot, to harden the metal. So it doesn't justify pain. We never justify pain and suffering. But we understand that ultimately, the end of the story is the Sefer Geula. Shmoy says, I discussed last week, Sefer Shmoy says, the Rambam says, the whole book is Geula, because even the Golas is a step toward Geula. 
Even the setback, even the pain, even the tzimtzum is b'shvil ha'gilui. Which is a tremendous lesson to all of us in our lives. That no matter what you're going through, it's not the end of the story. It's leading to something greater. Tagili of Shem Avayim. A revelation that even the Ovis, the great Ovis, Hinhen Hamarkova, though they were a chariot, they were a channel of the divine in this world, but Havaya was not revealed to them. It was revealed to Moshe, specifically in this darkest of places. And that would lead them to the, become the greatest nation. As the Maral says, that once they were freed from Egypt, they never, they became Ben Chayrin. Not just technically they were free. Their personalities, their character, their whole psychology assume now a free attitude. You know, freedom ultimately, you can be in prison and be free, and you can be out of prison and be enslaved. It's a mindset, it's an attitude. Nothing ever could subjugate them again. This was only possible through this dark darkness. So in our lives, the same is true. The challenge is to recognize the bigger picture because when you're in the throes, when you're in the abyss, when you're in the darkness, it's very hard to see outside of it. That's why we need friends and support and atayra and we learn. That's why we learn the parsha. Why do we learn? Why do we need to know all of this? Because we need to know that when we're in a place like that, the story continues. The tayra is not over in parsha va'era. It will continue in parsha boy where you have next week's parsha, the Gaula. When the Jews will be freed from Egypt. And you need Dafka the Havaya, specifically this higher revelation that revealed from the darkest, and the power, it has the power to redeem from a darker place. To be able to free someone in a place where there's great challenges, you need more strength. And that's the lesson to each one of us. Another question that came in on this Pasha, how was Moshe able to just walk into Pari's castle, palace, to ask him to let my people go? Did, did Pari forget it was the same Moshe who ran away to escape a death sentence for killing the Egyptian slave master? Did they try to arrest Moshe? Okay. But let's go back to the bigger story. Remember, Moshe also grew up in Pari's palace. After Pari's daughter found him on the water in the River Nile, that's where he grew up. In many ways, Pari was like his uh, step-grandfather or whatever you want to call him. And the story begins much earlier. We all know that the little boy Moshe Rabbeinu was playing and he grabbed the crown of the king, Pari, and Pari saw that as a bad omen, so he asked his, his advisors what to do. One said, kill the child immediately. It's a sign that he's going to ultimately challenge your leadership, which was true. That was Bilam. Yisrael said, no, it's just a child. Or I think Eov said it was just a child. And Yisrael, the third advisor, said, let's test him. Put before him two bowls, one bowl of precious stones, and one of hot coals, and let's see what he grabs. If he grabs the precious stones, you know it's a child that senses things. If he grabs the coals, you know it was just, uh, he was just playing. He didn't know the difference. Moshe was about to grab the, the precious stones, and then a malach came to save his life and changed his hand, and he grabbed the coal, put it to his mouth like a child does, and that's what caused, at least, 
what caused that Moshe had Aral Svasayim, difficulty to speak. So you see that the story of Moshe and Pare goes back very early on. It was very clear, Pare was a spiritual man, not a godly man, but a superstitious one, if you wish. We learned before about the dreams. So he saw in all of this, there was a deeper story. Once Moshe came back from Midian, and now he came empowered by Hashem to come to Pari. Pari clearly recognized the stature of this man, especially once he proved himself with the tests with the serpent and the, and the rod. So Pari did not take him lightly. It wasn't just about arresting him. We also know Pari did not, the Egyptians did not enslave the Levites. That's why Moshe and his Shevet, Shevet Levi, were not enslaved. Could he have changed that? No, but that was they accepted. They ruled that ruling they accepted. I'm sure some commentaries may speak about it as well. I haven't seen it, if you know anything from commentaries. So that's a general story, but it shows, also reflects the bigger picture, the Pari Moshe Rabbeinu. Pari is called the great serpent. That's what he's called, the Nochash Kadmoini. And Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, represents, as the Alta Rebbe says in Lukut HaTeda, Atzilus, on earth, as he's speaking to Pari. So the two forces, Zelu Umazeh, the ultimate of darkness, the ultimate of holiness. And that's exactly what the point was. The Ebeshter could have, of course, taken the Jews out of Egypt easily. Or he didn't even need Moshe. He could have persuaded Pari in his own ways. But he wanted it to be manifest in existence. Actually, two people. And ultimately, Moshe prevailing and convincing him. Okay. So there are central messages this, in these important chapters. Yitzis Mitzrayim is, of course, a cornerstone of Yiddishkeit. Zeichel Yitzis Mitzrayim. How many mitzvahs? How many times a day do we mention remembering Yitzis Mitzrayim? So, of course, Yitzis Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, comes hand in hand with the exile. And all of it together tells us the narrative of our own lives and the general lives, both individually and collectively, of our difficulties and the redemption it leads to, and the general difficulties, the collective ones of Golos, leading to the Geula, Just as we left Egypt, I will show you wonders in the future. When Mashiach comes, which is right, we're right at the threshold of that great revelation. So this, from this, let's move to Chavdal Tevis now. Chavdal Tevis is the yard site, and Chavdal Tevis, Tofkuf Ayin Gimel, when the Alta Rebbe in Kfar Piena was escaping Napoleon and ends up finally passing away, unfortunately, prematurely in Tofkuf Ayin Gimel. Mitzoy Shabbos Kedush, the Samach Sadek writes, of Pasha Shmois, and the beginning, the first day of Pasha's Va'era. The Rebbe explains in Sikhis why he emphasizes both, Shmois and Va'eda. So it's literally in this period of time and the Pashas that we're reading. So there's much to be said, and I've spoken about the Alter Rebbe, obviously the Miyasa of Chassidus Chabad, so Chassidus applied, my life Chassidus applied, is really would not exist without the Alter Rebbe. But all of what we know, how would the world be different? How would Chassidim be different? How everyone would be different? Al-Tarebbe, a Neshama Chadosh, a new soul, 
came into this world and introduced a new dimension of Teirah. When I say new, it was always there, but revealed a new dimension, making the deepest secrets of the cosmos and of our psyches and our souls accessible to each one of us through giving us language, human language, for my flesh I behold God, using examples of our lives, which are not just examples, they're manifestations of the divine on our terms, ultimately creating the, the, the absolute interface that fuses heaven and earth, the divine in existence, elokus and elimus, which is the essence of Teda in general, Pnimis HaTeir specifically, and more specifically, Chassidus and Chassidus Chabad. So it's not another day, it's a day that represents, as the Alter Rebbe writes in Simechov Ches 28, in the fourth section of Tanya, Geras HaKedosh, that on the day of a yard site, all the Aveda, all the work and contributions of the persons whose yard site that is, elevates to the highest levels and comes back down, Poyal Yeshua is Bekerava Oritz. It gathers together and affects salvations and redemptions. In the depths of the earth, which sometimes refers to Mitzrayim, in the abyss itself, in the very core of the darkness of this world. So let's talk about a few things about the Alter Rebbe, things I haven't spoken about before. If you go back to previous episodes, there's a lot about Alter Rebbe. We spoke in Yutas Kislev, Chavdala Tevis. There's actually a bunch of questions, and uh, I'll, I'll go through them because they're all interesting and give us a little insight into who the Alter Rebbe was and his effect till this very day. Because at the end of the day, the Rebbe is the seventh generation, or we are the seventh generation from the Alter Rebbe, in a direct link. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you so much for your weekly podcast or vodcast. You bring Chsidis alive. My question is this. The Alter Rebbe lived at the same time as the founding fathers of the USA. What did the Alter Rebbe know of their existence, their philosophy, rooted in John Locke, of unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? For that matter, did the Alter Rebbe ever address John Locke's two treatises of government? Finally, I know that the Alter Rebbe was against Napoleon who wanted a godless democracy. But why didn't he think of moving a chassidim to the USA, which had founded a democratic republic founded on the principles of God? Okay. So there is a story, I've shared the story in the past. That I remember it was said by the Gabbai in 770 when he was selling the mitzvahs. Shabbos Bereshis Tovshin Mem, or Mem Aleph it was. So the custom was on Shabbos Bereshit, they would sell the mitzvahs, the opening of the Arun Kedesh, the Neil Lahavdola, the different things, and the Rebbe was there by the Fabrengen. The Rebbe would be immersed, usually looking in his Chumash, as the Gabe would stand with a Shreimel, tell a story, or begin with a Torah, and then sell the mitzvahs a bidding, or announce the different mitzvahs. So that year he told the story that was printed in Migdalays, Rabbi Munshine, Shalom had published a book, Migdalays, and there was a story there that was not known until that time. Or at least he discovered, where, discovered the story in different writings and manuscripts. The story is that when they were first creating maps, which was in the time of the Alter Rebbe, or well, the first maps of the United States of America, 
Because at that point, the country, America was discovered by Columbus. We're already, you're talking about 1776, already the founding of the United States, as mentioned. So they showed a map to the Alta Rebbe of the New World, of America. Now remember, these maps were not satellite. They were based on the navigators that would go and they would map out, to the best of their ability, the, the boundaries of each of the countries they traveled to. The shores and so on, so you could make a, create some type of... So they were not perfectly accurate, but they were pretty cl close. They showed the map to the Alta Rebbe of America, and the Alta Rebbe pointed and said there was a mistake in the map. This is the story Rabbi Pinson, the Gabbai, was telling. And the Rebbe was looking in the Chumash, the map. He said, there's a mistake in the map. They asked, how does Alta Rebbe know? He was never there. So Chassidim answered, or somebody answered, The whole world is created through the blueprint of Teda. God looked into the Teda, and that's how he created the world. So a person who knows how to look into the Teda can see what the world looks like. So the Alta Rebbe, based on that, knew there's a mistake. The Rebbe, because that's the story. The Rebbe, without even picking up his head, I remember I stood right close. I was, my job was to remember and to publish and to write and then publish these talks, the Rebbe's talks. And the Rebbe said something a lot of people didn't even hear because they didn't expect the Rebbe to say anything. The Rebbe said, And the primary thing is that when you come to America, you shouldn't make a mistake. Interesting. And that's obviously printed in the Hanukkah. I wrote it. I heard it clearly. The Alter Rebbe saw it from above, from the Torah. Which means he wasn't in America and he saw it. The Rebbe is saying now, when you come to America, we shouldn't make a mistake, which most likely means that we should make sure that the world and America is aligned to Torah. So the Alter Rebbe was already giving the Koyach. Now I've not heard the Koyach, the power to refine and ultimately transform America also to become a place of Teir and Chassidus. I have not found anywhere references of the Alta Rebbe directly, but from the story of Napoleon and Alexander, the Alta Rebbe opposed Napoleon, as you write, you can derive many lessons. This was the beginning of a new era, the Alta Rebbe. Baal Shem Tov really began. But the Alta Rebbe was right in the middle of the country of the United States, was the first institutionalized democracy, freedom based on the principles, actually biblical principles, as has been pointed out by writers. A book called On Two Wings, The Hebrew Republic. Different books that talk about how the founding fathers were influenced by Torah metaphysics is the way one of them expresses it. We're talking about not Jewish scholars, based on the writings of the founding fathers. The Alter Rebbe was absolutely aware. If he was aware about the war, and he saw the ideological and spiritual significance, that it would be easier for the Jews spiritually though it would be physically more difficult under Alexander the Tsar of Russia. By Napole under Napoleon, it would have been easier, but far more spiritually challenging because of the godlessness. And even with Alexander winning the war, as the Alter Rebbe supported and ultimately prevailed through the blowing of Schaefer that year. It was right before the Alter Rebbe's Estalkos, by the way. And we know that the Estalkos was affected by Napoleon. So Napoleon had an impact on the Alter Rebbe. Because not so simple. I've never seen this before, but you can compare it somewhat that when Yaakov was wrestling with the angel of Esau, Yaakov represents Torah, represents Jews, represents godliness. Esau represents the antithesis. Esau would ultimately become the father, grandfather of Rome, Magdiel Zuremi. Rome, the Western world, the Christian world, 
Edom, Malchus Edom, the Golas Edom which we're in. So it was a wrestle between the Jew and Edom. And the angel of Edom, so the angel could not prevail. But he ultimately wounded Yaakov. He displaced his um, hip, sciatic, and that's why we don't need the sciatic nerve and all of that. Gidan Nosha. And the Ramban says that displacement affected every tzaddik throughout history. All the pains and tribulations and difficulties that any tzaddik have, the Yisurim, all come from that displacement of the angels. So, though Yaakov prevailed and even got the name Yisrael, he was able to prevail even over Elikim Ba'anoshim. But still, a wound remained. So perhaps the Alter Rebbe was ultimately, even though he fought them as Meshach Nefesh that Napoleon should lose, but Napoleon displaced something. Because the world was not ready yet for total reconciliation. As the Rebbe explains in the classic Vayesh of Tov Shinun explaining the story with the Alter Rebbe, that this was exactly the same story. Yaakov thought Esav was already ready. Then he realized he's not for the Geula. But ultimately, and he says to Esav, I will come, but slowly. And, and, and Rashi explains, what, what does he mean? He said, because when Mashiach comes, there will, will be reconciliation, will be total transformation of Edim. At the end of Malachi. At the end of Avadia, sorry. Which is also written by Avadia Ger, by Ger, Avadia, comes from Edem. Transformation, to cut down the tree, you need the wood of the tree, the, the handle of the axe. So all this is similar to the same story. That the world was not yet ready for Gula, so we can't just live side by side with Napoleon. It would be too powerful. Even with Alexander winning, look, assimilation, what it did to the Jewish people, and continues to do. But then the Rebbe says in Tavshinun Beis Vayeshev, Pasha Vayeshev, now seven generations later, we're ready to enter the world of France, of the Western world, Sarfas, same words, letters as Faratsta, and transform it into Faratsta 770, spreading of Chassidus, transforming the Western world. So yes, America, you can say, is a dimension of transformation of the Western world because it is built on godly principles. But at that point, the people weren't ready even to go there. It was just the beginning of a country. We're not talking about Bedera Chateva, could the Alter Rebbe even move there if he wanted to. So to ask the question why he didn't move, the Abishta was not ready for him to move there. It would need time. Because remember, the forces that were godless forces were still very dominant. And even America, we, even though it's based on in God we trust and the principles that each person, all people are created equal, etc. Are built on principles, as the Rebbe says, Amalchus shal chesed, Shabbos parsha b'shalach, tafshin, mem. The Rebbe said those amazing words. He applied the Urim v'tumim, the Urim v'tumim, the Sefer Urim v'tumim, the idea that miyad Hashem hiskel, that God gave, implanted in the founding fathers a vision of creating a country based on the principles of Teir and Sheva Mitzvah Zbeneach. But ultimately, now, we're, now is the time. And we are here. So the coming to America of the Friedrich Rebbe, 82 years ago, and the Rebbe 81 years ago, Tavshin and Tavshin Aleph, respectively, was all part of this journey of bringing the highest levels of Elokus into the Kachatzi Kadra even the lower hemisphere. 
So though the Alter Rebbe may have not addressed it specifically, but it's, it's definitely implicit in all of Chassidus, the purpose of transforming this world. Okay. Why was it important that the Alter Rebbe was a new soul, a Neshama Chadasha, that had never been in the world before? Whether, first of all, whether we know the reason or not, that's the fact. We know it from the Baal We know all the stories. But it also makes total sense because Alter Rebbe was, as we were just discussing, introduced a whole new energy. New energy needs a new neshama. What's the new energy? The new energy of giving us, on the, in literally human terms, in the world of tachtenim, a language, a modality, instruments, to be able to transform the world with the deepest teachings of Teirah, Primis of Keser HaMelech, the precious, most precious stone in the king's crown. In the king's crown. That is a unprecedented revelation and requires an unprecedented neshama. That's the most basic reason. And it really gives us b'derech ha'teva. Geula could always come. But b'derech ha'teva, b'das in a way that we can understand that we can actually take our lives, our personal lives, no matter what level you're on, and introduce godliness into that. B'chol that our actions, our behaviors, all our activities should be saturated with and should appreciate, even on the terms of the animal soul, the mind of the animal soul, and its emotions should ultimately appreciate the divine. That's pretty big. It's pretty unprecedented. It could have been before the Alter Rebbe, which means the energy and the light is strong enough that it consumes and it elevates everything. But now it's in a way that we can that it's internalized, it's integrated and initiated from below. Why is the Alter Rebbe's so, Alt song only sung on special occasions? If it's such a powerful song that inspires our souls, why not sing it every day? Another person phrases it like this. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I have a question about the Alter Rebbe's song, the Dalit Babas. The song of four stanzas, four sections, which is the Alter Rebbe's nigga. We usually only sing it on Yutas Kislev and other special occasions, such as walking to the chuppah. It's such a beautiful, uplifting, and inspirational song. Why don't we sing it every day? I understand that keeping it for special occasions keeps it unique and special, but for example, giving zdok is an amazing mitzvah, and we try to do it every day instead of just one spe- on special occasions. Did the Alter Rebbe ever give specific instructions that we should only sing it at certain times? So you really answered your own question. I mean, you could ask the same question on Yom Kippur. If Yom Kippur is such a powerful day, why not have it every day? Same thing every, every special day. So there are things that are told to us that we have to do every day, like Zdok and other things. And then there are Taka special things. There's an example in the Gemara. The Gemara says, Kola Emer Halal B'chol Yeim. Anyone that praises God says Halal. The praise through Halal. B'chol Yeim Ki'ilu It's as if he's insulting God. Why? Because when you say thank you every day, it starts losing its power. It's like some people keep saying thank you, thank you, thank you because they're trying to be pleasers or whatever it may be. You have to appreciate it. Halil is said at special times. Of course you can say Halil every day in concept. We say Moidani every morning. Thank you for returning my soul to me. Hoidu, Moidim. We have all kinds of thank yous. But Halil is a special praise that's at a Yomim Tevim, Rosh the different laws of which hal, the full hal, the half of hal, chetzi hal, hal sholem. 
So it's about appreciating certain things. It's just like an anniversary is a special day. Rosh Hashanah, something happens. And it's also psychologically makes it special when it's not just something that becomes. Like Tainuk Tmidei in the Tainuk. You do it every day, then it becomes something common and you start stop appreciating. That's one point. Then there's another point. That's from the perspective of the Gavra, of the individual, how it affects us. Then there's the very uniqueness of it. Ah, Yem Kippur is Achaz Bashana. Its nature is a unique one. And uniqueness is, is, is appreciated in its exclusivity, not, its, not in its commonality. The Alter Rebbe's Nigan is a powerful Nigan that's able to access deepest levels of brachas. So we sing it in special times. And yes, by a chuppah, which is the most special time, it's like a Yom Kippur for the chas and kala and family. And the same is with the special occasions. So it's not a contradiction. There are things we do every day that are special. And there are things that we reserve for particular times. So both from the very essence of the power of it and its effect on us, something you don't do all the time. Just like a nest doesn't happen every day. So nature is also a miracle. But nature, as the, as the Chacham Tzvi writes, is a bunch of miracles happening so repeatedly that you don't even notice. If it was happened once, it would become a big miracle. Like the Baal Shem Tov says, the miracle, miracle in nature is frequency. The sun rose once in our lifetimes. We'd have a different appreciation. There are things that are Tmid and Kisidran, like the Akedah Sitzchak says, Chisidran cites it. That there are two ways to experience God. One is through Tmid and Kassidin, seeing the consistency of nature. That also tells you who's keeping it consistent. That means there's a conductor of the symphony. And then the Chidush that comes to a miracle. That describes God's power of suspending nature. That's more God's Chidush. One is in seeing it in the consistency and one is seeing it in the uniqueness. And both are important in revealing God in this existence. And finally, one more question. There are many, many more, but we'll go over this question. The Alter Rebbe wrote the Tanya, also known as Sefer Shel Benunim. But did he also write another book called Sefer Shel Tzadikim? Sefer Shel Benunim, that was destroyed in a fire. Now, Sefer Shel Benunim, we all know, that's Tanya, called Sefer Shel Benunim, the Sefer of the Intermediates. People who are, Benunim, as the Alter Rebbe explains what a Benunim is, the essence of a person's avoidance. You may not be able to control your very faculties, but you can control your thought, speech, and action. But then there is also a Sefer Sadiqim, yes, indeed. So let me read from a Rishima of the Rebbe. This is printed in the Kut Siches Chelik Yud. Kut Siches, volume 10, page 268. It's from a letter from the Rebbe dated Yud Menachemov, Tovshin Yudalad. So the Rebbe says about what you write about. The, the tzaddik of Shpala, called the Shpala Zayda, when he was by the Alta Rebbe. So the Rebbe says, I have in my own manuscripts, I've, I've written about a story that I heard from, my, from the Rebbe, Friedrich Rebbe, my father-in-law, that the Shpala Zayda said to the Alta Rebbe, You began writing a book of for tzaddikim, which is, of course, higher than Bainanim, because Tzadikim, even in, even in the Sefer Shabbinim, the Tzadik is quite a high level, chapter 10. So he said, it, he began writing this book, when the Welt kendus nit fartrogen. The world cannot tolerate it. So that awakened Kitregim, like a challenge in heaven above. 
Uposku Sheyisraf. And in heaven they ruled, they decreed that this book should get burned. Ve'ani ele, the Shmuel Elizadeh said to the Alter Rebbe, ba'eshe lav ha'shamayma. And I will elevate, I will go upward to heaven in that flame that, that is burning toward heaven, the flame that consumed the Sefer Shal Tzadikim. Ve'chein hoya, she'bezman ha'srefa nistalak harav ha'tzadik ha'saba mishpalav. And that's how it happened, that during the fire, which burned the Sefer Shal Tzadikim, because the world couldn't tolerate it, so the 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 Shpol the, the tzaddik of the of, of Shpol passed away as he had predicted. So there's a lot to be said about this Hashim at this point, but what's the point? So why did he write it? Why did the Alter Rebbe write something if at the end of the day he's going to be burned and the world can't deal with it? So the answer obviously is that what he wrote did not get burned. It was the bottom line it couldn't be implemented. But just like we say that every child is taught the entire Torah in its mother's womb. And then we're made to forget. So what's the point? Why do you write, teach the entire Torah if you're made to forget? The answer the Alter Rebbe says in the Teda Shlach, that we're, our conscious is made to forget, but our superconscious always retains it and it gives us strength. So the Alter Rebbe writing it gave strength. It's like, we mamshik something in Avira Elam, they gave us the power that ultimately allows us to elevate so even though we may not reach the level of tzaddik, not just Sefer Shal Tzaddikim, even the tzaddik of the Sefer Shal Benim that the Rebbe says in another Rishima, is since it's in Sefer Shal Benim, it's also somewhat accessible or relevant to the Benini. As the Sikh in, I think, Vayetze Tov Shinun, the Rebbe says that every person has the tzaddik Benini in Russia within them. So by just revealing it, just like by Matan Teda, it was a tremendous revelation, it changed the world, and now we have the power each in our terms, to reach higher levels and aspire. Mosei Yigiu, we always have to say, when will my Veda reach, my work reach, the Ovis, Avram, Mitzvah, Yankov, even though we may never reach their actual level, but that's what we need to aspire to. And that's what it gave strength to do. Okay. So moving on to more, some more subjects. Does a mashpia have to care for their mushpa? Does a mashpi have to care for them? When you are seeking guidance for something in life from a mentor, does the mentor have to empathize with you? Or is it what is most important is that you get the guidance you are seeking? One would think that an individual is not going to confine personal matters to another unless they feel that the, that, that person feels for them. However, I've heard from a respected mashpia that all that, that all that matters is to have a mashpia to see guidance from them, and it's not the most important factor if you feel that the mashpia doesn't get you. Can you please share your thoughts on the matter? <laughs> okay, I'm glad you're asking this question. So instead of me giving you my thoughts, as I always try to do here, let me get you the Rebbe's thoughts. Sometimes we have them explicitly, sometimes we have to extrapolate from the Rebbe's writings or, spo- or talks or uh, notes and so on. So when did the Rebbe establish the idea of Mashpiyim that Rebbe established? I mean, it goes back from the beginning of, of time. But in Yutas Kislev, Tovshin Lamed Zion, and I remember it vividly, the same for bringing with the Rebbe, the next Sikh would talk about publishing Ayim Beis, the full Ayim Beis for the first time. So the Sikh before the Rebbe, remember, opened up in a very interesting way. He says, Yutas Kislev is the Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus. Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus. 
Then we, after all, have to do something for Chassidus. It's an interesting expression from the Rebbe, Fort. And the Rebbe said, now is the time to renew something that was not able to fully take hold in the time of the Rebbe Rashab, the idea of Mashpim. He began saying that every person should volunteer to be a Mashpia. Every person needs a Mashpia. Mashpia doesn't necessarily mean a formal official one. It could be a Mashpia for one person. And just to show how serious this was, it continued. After Yutaskisa, the Rebbe spoke about on Reshchei Shvat and Yud Shvat and Tu Shvat. Said Mashpim and Mashpia is for women. And at length in Yud Shvat, interestingly, he described what is a Mashpia. He says, what does the word mashpia come from? So we know anyone learns chassidus, mashpia comes from the word shefa. Now usually when you learn chassidus, shefa is compared to oyer. But if you think about it, most people go away that oyer is the superior one. Because oyer is connected to the moyer, it doesn't have any identity of its own. It's not affected by the recipient. A light that shines, the sunlight shines on a palace just like on a pile of garbage. No, it's not affected by what is below. All the milas of Eir, as an example for Eir Ein Sof. Shefa, on the other hand, is not, not necessarily completely connected to the source. It is affected. It applies itself. And the Rebbe there, interestingly, talked about the milo of Shefa over Eir. A mashpi is not called a meir, a moir. He's not called a luminary. He's called a mashpia because he engages himself and gets involved not just in hearing the problem and giving advice, like a book, but actually gets involved and cares. So my answer is, absolutely. A good mashpia has empathy, cares, you feel it. And he actually cares, not just a fake. Now, can you get advice from someone who doesn't care? didn't say you can't get such advice, but it's going to be a far better and powerful advice when it's someone who does care and identifies with you. And what do you need more than the, the Mittler Rebbe himself? Mashpia of all Mashpiyam, the Rebbe. Famous story that he stopped the Yechidus because he couldn't find within himself, even Bedakus, even subtly something that someone shared with him. Because he can't give advice to someone unless he finds it within himself. What? A Rebbe has to find within himself a Chos's problems? A Chos's shortcomings? But that's called true healing that you identify with it, and you correct it within you, then you can give the proper advice. Now I know right away some will say, that's not a mashpia, that's a rebbe. No, but that's, listen, it means empathy, it means caring. Yes, we can't do it on the level of the rebbe. But the more you can connect, the more credibility you have, and frankly, the better the advice will be. A person can be very book smart and, and give advice, but imagine the advice to someone who's suffering a certain problem. Mashpia never went through such a problem, and he's not empathizing. How exactly is he going to give advice that really is going to be relevant and practical? Again, he could be right, and he may say something right from based on Svarim. But if he went through the experience, his advice is going to be a far more seasoned, mature, and direct one. And people will know. Yes, some people may not always sense, but uh, most people sense when you have that connection, that empathy. Remember, it's not how much people, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Okay. Here goes a more controversial one, but we address everything here, so let's go. 
Can a rov go bad? Can a rov ever go bad? And if he does, how can you know and what can you do? We are told that we must listen to our Rabbonim. We're told the Torah tells us to listen to Rabbonim. Rabbonim is not because they're Rabbonim and they're great people. It's because they can know how, they know Torah and they apply the Torah. So let's make that very clear. It's not about the people. It's about what they're conveying. Torah Semes. So just as the Ebershter gave us a Torah to give us guidance, he gave us Chachmei Yisrael. He gave us a new generation. The Ziknei Yisrael, the guides. The Kehanim, Kehen HaShabiyamecha. And ultimately that translates into the Tanoim and the Maroim and the Rabbonim in each generation. That has Smich Ish Mepi Ish. It's not again their own power because they're book smart. They were ordained by someone who was ordained all the way back to Moshe Rabbein. Therefore they also have the knowledge and they have Shimush, experience. And they have Yiddish Shemayim, which is perhaps the most important of all. That's what a healthy Teirah Rav is. And this is not my term. This is what the Teirah says. So the Ebishter could have just given us a Teirah. <coughs> but who's going to interpret that Teirah? Who's going to apply it to each given situation? So he also gave us an Abonim. Now, can a rov go bad, as we're going to discuss? Of course, a, a human being has free will. Even a novi can go bad. We have a novi sheket. You have a novi that can be a prophet, a good prophet, a, health, a, a tater prophet, and then he can do something wrong. Yechen and Kohen Godel. Shemesh, 80 years he served, and then he became a tzduki. So every human being, no one is, is infallible. But let's continue. So I just wanted to address, must listen to Rabbanim for this reason. But how do we know that what they're saying is correct? There's a concept of a and Mamre and other Rabbanim who go bad. Must we still listen to those? Okay. Throughout history, there have been disputes between Rabbanim. How can laymen know who's correct and who we should follow? Some very famous and important Rabbanim have been slandered by other very important Rabbanim. The Rambam, the Alter Rebbe, and even the Rebbe in our times. What's a layman to do in such a situation? In such situations? I heard a rabbi say that Judaism is a very autonomous religion because while you must listen to your rabbi you must you may choose your rabbi so how can we know who to choose okay great questions i actually addressed this years ago in articles how do you find how do you choose a rabbi and i discussed the same tater that told us that this is tater semis and this is what you're supposed to follow told us that you have to listen to the the experts with the authorities in your time which today means rabbanim So the Torah, in its truth, had to also anticipate these questions. What do you do? How do you know? Now, you have to assume, first of all, call Yisrael B'cheskes Kashu, is definitely Rabbanim, that if a Rav has smicha, which means someone ordained him, not himself, he didn't ordain himself, he has shimush, which means somebody guided him, apprenticeship, residency, so to speak, and learned on the job, and he has Yiddish Shemayim, how do you know that? You can't always see it. Either it's become known, people have seen it in his behavior, in his way of dealing with things. So there's a certain legitimacy to that. That's what the Torah says. But the Torah also anticipates what happens if a Rav becomes corrupt. Let's say he's Meshuchet, let's say he's bought off. So our true Rav will recuse himself. Rav is not allowed to say a ruling if he has any self-interest involved. 
family, financial, or other interest. Now, of course, a corrupt rabbi may not tell you. That's part of the corruption. That is why, thank God, we don't have only one rabbi on earth. There's another Rav. If indeed you're, you have such a question, so go to a second Rav. Just like we go to a doctor, you go to a second doctor. You get another opinion. But the key thing is this, not to just run to Rabbanu because you're looking for your answer. You also have to be honest. Because just as the rabbi can be corrupt, so can you. So can the individual. How do you know you're not accepting it because it's not comfortable for you? That's also critical. That's the whole point of objectivity. So trust is a key component, but trust has criteria. And it says in, the, in Halachas, what's a Zohar Mamre and how do you establish that? Or other things. Now, if there's a disagreement between Nabonim, you have that Shammai and Hillel, full of disagreements throughout the Torah. And there's a ways that they're resolved. There's a way, a tater way. A disagreement is fine. There's nothing wrong with a disagreement. How do you interpret it? It actually crystallizes the idea. Libun Hilchus says crystallized through disagreements. So if you go through all the criteria and you're looking honestly, and if indeed you have a doubt, not because of your interests, but because you may question, and remember, ask yourself the question, why are you questioning the rabbi? Do you have any self-interest in that? So go to another rav. And if they disagree, go to a third. That's why a bezin is three. A Sanhedrin is 71. You should have a majority. So that's a brief answer to this question. Okay. Let's go to a few more questions. And I look forward to any follow-up anybody wants to bring up regarding this or any other issue. Okay. Pascal's wager. Can you explain Pascal's wager and why it makes sense mathematically to take the gamble that there really is a God? Thank you. So I was weighing whether I should even read this question, but it came in. And as I said, I tried to read every possible question unless I really feel completely, you know, if it's pure halacha, I'll always say go to a rov. But being this question was asked, because I'm not the expert on Pascal and or his wager, even though I am familiar with it. So Pascal, and, and the question is whether it even fits into the Torah and Chassidus applied uh, platform. So I'll put it into context. Pascal wager, Pascal was a philosopher who made a, he had a wager. He said, I don't know for sure whether God exists and whether all the laws of so-called of God are real, but I also don't know it's not. So his wager is, I'd rather find out, I'd rather live an ethical life, a virtuous life, and find out at the end of it that God does not exist, God forbid, I'll say, then live a non-virtuous life, a selfish life, and find out that God does exist. So that gamble, it's, the, it's worth the risk. Because at the end of the day, what do I end up with? A virtuous life. The other way, it's far, far worse. Why is it not a Teda approach? Because Teda is not into wagers. Is an axiom stated right at the beginning of the Teda. It doesn't throw in logical proofs and rational proofs for many reasons. First of all, because maybe you can't absolutely prove God's existence because God made it that way. He created an agnostic world with a great Simpson addition. It did a good job to always leave doubt, to always leave the ability for a person to choose and make a mistake. If we couldn't choose, the whole purpose of life wouldn't be there. So we could choose. At the same time, we say, my meaning, bnei ma'aminim. 
that were children, were faith, people of faith, children of people of faith, are believers, believers, children of believers. But still we have a Nefesh Abamis that has another perspective and challenges us. A sin is a result of blindness. We don't see the godliness. We don't see the impact and consequences of our behavior. That's the world that God created. So it's not about proof. It's about a certain acceptance. That's why even many mitzvahs, the people who count mitzvahs say, is faith in God a mitzvah? So some say no, because if you don't have faith in God, you, don't have faith, you won't accept the mitzvahs. So it has to precede the mitzvahs. Like nasa kedel nanishmet, so to speak. So, with that said, the Pascal's wager maybe works for some people's animal soul because they want to live, you know, basically it's a bet and it's worth living a, a, a virtuous life. But I feel that most people, this wager will not be enough. You'll live a virtuous life to some extent. I'd like to find somebody that lives a perfectly virtuous life due to this Pascal's wager. So I think it's something to talk about. It's like the Rambam writes at the end of Hilchus Shuvah that everybody does Aveda Shalei Shema for physical reward, material reward, spiritual reward, Elam Haba, reward to be good with God, or feeling that you need God on your side. So there is always an element of that. There's also elements of superstition, which I'm not going to go into right now. So the bottom line is, if somebody helps you in Avedis Hashem, so I'll go with the Rebbe Rashab's approach. He didn't like people saying commentary on Tanya, but if it adds a Yerushalayim, if it adds a Yerushalayim, he didn't mind. If it adds a Yerushalayim, that someone takes this wager, fine. That's my thoughts on this topic. Okay. Now, we have here a few follow-ups. There's a Shalom Bayes department that we've been addressing, which is like a column. And then there's other follow-ups. I'm just looking at the time. Yeah, let's, let's do... I'm going to do a follow-up to what I spoke about last week about truth versus tradition, whether a person should follow the, the so-called their truth, even if it leads them places that are not exactly faithful to Yiddishkeit. Okay. So this is a longer letter, but I thought it's worth reading because I, I found it to touch me, and I think it will be touching to all of us to hear. Dear Simon, I want to thank you for, the, for the, this program and for all the other available programs online, such as Tanya, Fabrengens, Tanya, Fabrengens, Ayin Beis, etc. It's incredible to be able to study Chassidus on such a high level, with passion and clarity, and accessible anywhere you may be in the world. I am eternally grateful. I began writing this as a short note in response to the person who asked a question to you, and it turned into almost three pages. If you feel this is meaningful and can help the questioner, feel free to read it on your show. And I do feel it's meaningful, so I'm going to read it. Yes, it's not short, so, but I will read it, and, uh, and I think it will be beneficial. Here's what the person writes. I left Chabad shortly after Gimel Tamas. I had been drifting for many years before, but that period was very intense and chaotic. Nothing made sense, and even parents and grandparents were grasping at something to hold on to. The trauma was deep, and it had not yet settled down and became integrated. I ra- ran off as soon as I could. Of course, in retrospect, I know now that my issues began earlier. Broken friendships, shalom bias issues, childhood dreams of being Alamad Vovnik and being imbued as a child with so much chassidishkeit, but not knowing at all how to integrate it, especially since I had sh- sh- shpilkes 
and I was a restless kid. I ran, but I, I told myself that I would pursue truth and follow it, and follow it to its logical conclusion. The words Ein Eid Movade was deeply ingrained in me, ingrained in my mind by my father, and I, until today, they flash in front of my eyes every single day. Ein Eid Movade, nothing but God. I explored the liberal Jewish denominations, and each one, while they had something intellectual to offer, ultimately failed to hold and inspire me. It was, it was devastating because the essence of me wanted a Jewish way of expression, and I couldn't find one that fit. And Chabad was not accessible for me because the community was just too stifling. I couldn't breathe there. I was criticized and condemned, and I ran further, farther away. Living in the secular world was attractive and exciting. Movies, the arts, and literature provided intellectual stimulation and excitement. Bars, restaurants, travel, and music provided emotional experiences. But after some time, each one of these experiences began to diminish, and I was still there searching for connection. The world out there turned out to be a huge facade with blinking neon lights, bright and sunny on the outside and empty on the inside. People were either depressed or taking drugs, running after every sort of self-gratification, money, and power, pushing themselves to dangerous extremes in order to feel something, anything, and coming up empty. It was shocking to see people who were so talented, so educated and respected in their fields, yet they were morally vacant on the inside. The greatest role models of the time, and yet their personal lives, were a complete mess. They couldn't restrain themselves from following every desire, and eventually it led to downfall and enormous suffering. It was a devastating realization. I couldn't embrace the world out there, but I couldn't have come back to Chabad either. The memories of being judged, criticized, and bullied were still strong. The Chabad of my youth was a very tight circle that had little room, that had little room for a sensitive boy who sat in the thrall of the Al-Tuchsidim giants such as Asher Sasonkin or Elechaim Reidblat, role models of the highest order. But who couldn't, who, but who couldn't figure out how, to, but who couldn't figure out how to be like them? And if I couldn't be like them, what, what was my place? Eventually, my personal life began to fracture under the weight of unresolved emotions, and I began to have chronic pain, which led to financial problems and eventual bankruptcy. This pushed me onward on another journey, and I came to find myself in Eastern spirituality and contemporary modern spirituality. There was a lot of beauty and spirituality there, many broken souls looking for comfort and solace, and something akin to Eneid Malvade exist in their spiritual teachings as well, which resonated with me and gave me a respite. Yet there is a neighbor in this world, and I may be, and maybe I will have to express my connection to him in words that I don't, I don't grow up with, but which also have beauty and meaning. And it worked. After years of not speaking to God, I, found, I finally began. And I was flooded with gratefulness. But even while I found a way to talk and communicate and feel connected to God, I was always looking and reading anything I could on Judaism. Something could not let go of me. I was not integrated and I knew it. I was a soul that was connected to the highest levels of Messias Nefesh and my immediate family, and the Bubbas and Zaydis and Ganadin were not letting me get away. And then came the next realization, and it was devastating as well. While contemporary spirituality is full of ancient wisdom coupled with modern psychology, it fires up the intellect but doesn't transform the character of the individual. While there is much talk about God's oneness and the unity of all people, in actuality there was there is no community that shares a set of values from birth to death with, with rituals 
that are practiced daily, monthly, weekly, with individuals and families, all ages, that encompasses the entire gamut of one's life. What exists are communities of adult men and women primarily who are searching for their own spirituality, where everyone is on a personal journey with no responsibility to the other. The emphasis is on me. I'm too busy with my spiritual practice to be available for you. They can't commit to relationships. They don't want children. Esca- don't want children. Escape from relationships as soon as it gets tough. Move from one spiritual community to, a- to another. Pursue every latest form of healing. Take an every type of hallucinogen to experience godliness, all with no responsibility to the other. In the pursuit of God, that is within me. All the fo- that... In the pursuit of God that is within me, all the focus is on myself. Fortunately for me, I had enough implanted deep within me. And I am in a beautiful reconciliation process, step by step with Yiddishkeit and Chassidus. The complaints and criticism, and criticism I had over the years are still there. They just don't have the bite anymore. All the questions about God's existence and goodness the Torah being divine or not, all the injustices and the Holocaust are not very interesting anymore. The secular world definitely has no answers that suffices neither intellectually nor experientially, and that leads to empty and meaningless meaningless lives. The Torah world may not satisfy your intellectual questions at the moment, but it provides you with a life that if you so choose can be filled with meaning and gratefulness, moment to moment without pause. Simply look around and see how much goodness and beauty, caring and sharing comes from a Torah. That while it commands us to work in our, on our own inner lives, demands that we express it outwardly toward others. This is something that while it does exist here and there, only in the religious Jewish world does it flourish to its full extent. In conclusion, don't drop your desire for honesty and integrity. Keep searching and keep questioning. Rock the boat. But it may be useful to speak to people who came from a non-religious background or to someone who left religion and came back, and ask them what exists out there in the big world that is meaningful. Why did they leave the secular world and embrace Judaism or Chabad? Try to find out what it is out there, what is out there, before you go on a journey that may lead to nowhere. I suspect that the Kutz tradition of following your integrity was not about even if it takes me away from Yiddishkeit, quote-unquote, the purpose of the Kuskut tradition was to burn through any superficialities in yourself. How can I open my heart in the presence of God who is concealed and remain open? How can I daven today with the same excitement as the child I once was? Just like the four-year-old boy I was, who watched Usher Sasunk and daven and was mesmerized, how can I keep that moment fixed as my center, which never gets affected by the turbulence around it? That's the search for integrity that we all need. Sending you all the blessings in your quest. Your question touched my heart deeply. You're a soul, brother, or sister. I thank you. Okay. So I hope you appreciate why I read this. I found it to be very powerful and meaningful. With that, let me... There's some more follow-ups. Uh, I spoke last week about the question about why Mitzrayim, Mitzis Mitzrayim did not happen in different... It's celebrated in one week. So someone wrote, not a question, but a possible answer to the question about the exodus from Egypt celebrated all in one week. Yitzhiz Mitzrayim is so basic to us as a nation that it is incumbent upon us to remember each and every day the exodus. And 
Every generation, a person has to envision themselves as if they're leaving Egypt. Secondly, every holiday is Zechlitzis Mitzrayim. Reminds us of leaving Egypt. Thank you for clarifying Chassidus concepts, Torah concepts, and Yiddishkeit in general over the years, and Natslacha for the future, bringing the Geula. Okay. One more follow-up. Moshe killing the Egyptian rabbi. Third Alei of Shmeis, Pasuk 12, Rashi says Moshe saw that the Jew wouldn't come from the Egyptian. A Jew wouldn't come from the Egyptian, so he killed him. I feel like the Torah critics, my Torah critic included inside, have, could have a field day with this, Rashi. You speak so much on how everyone and everything is essentially good. Yes, I can understand that a Yid has a Maila, a quality, but the fact that the Mitzri, the Egyptian, wouldn't have any Jews as descendants shows to me that he's worthless otherwise. Seems like Rashi is saying, only if you have a Jew as a descendant are you worthy of living. How would you explain in terms of all is good and all, and all is just, all is emes? Well, very simply put, first of all, the Egyptian was not innocent. He was hurting a Jew. And he probably hurt other Jews. Think of him like a Nazi. Let's talk a Nazi. So there's no question that he was doing, he deserved what he'd got. After you see what the Egyptians did to the Jewish people. Moshe's only concern was that maybe Lamaila in heaven, someone's going to come out of him that's important. That itself was also a compromise to, 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 in a way, to virtue, because he was a Nazi. Would you keep a Nazi alive if you had a choice? Who's torturing Jews, killing Jews, because someone may derive from him? So that's how I understand the Rashi, the exact opposite. That's the ultimate, uh, ultimate kindness. That he's considering that. And because he didn't see anything coming out of him, it's not just the, the Jew from him, anyone that would be significant. Now you could say anyone born from him would be significant, but you know what? Nazis also give birth to Nazis. So he was looking for some type of, something comes out of him. So then, like, Mebnei Bon of Shalhaman, ultimately the grandchildren of Haman, learning to in Bnei Brak. He saw there was not that. That's when he proceeded to give him what he deserved as a Nazi in the first place. That's my take on it. Okay, let's conclude with a Chassidus question, which was really from last week, but it's connected to Tanya. So let me briefly cover that. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I have a question about the three klippas. So we're talking about the Sholosh klippas atmeis, the three impure husks, if you wish, shells, that completely conceal the divine within. Just to give a little context. But let's read the question, and then I'll explain. In numerous places of Chassidus, we are taught that the three klippas can only be elevated via abstention. By avoiding it, correct, refraining. Tchiyah. Or, in the words of the Hayyem of 26 of Tevis, they must be completely eradicated. Completely destroyed. Shvirosan zui takanosan is an expression. By breaking them, you repair them. You live up to their purpose. Now we know that both in history as well as according to Allah, we don't need to entirely abstain from using them. For example, a Jew may benefit from selling non-kosher meat. I know Lubavitchers who are owners of franchises of various non-kosher chain restaurants. It is only non-kosher wine that is osibahana. You can't have any benefit from it. So too we are taught that our patriarch Yaakov had packs of dogs helping him herd and guard his sheep with opinions varying between 600,000 and 1.2 million. And he quotes here from Breshis Rabba Ayin Gimel Yudalev. My question is that according to Allah, it seems that we may benefit from the impure clippus and so too from our patriarch Yaakov's behavior. I've also heard that the Rebbe had a guard dog at his house, but I don't know whether that is true or not, but Chassidus tells us to abstain or eradicate. Which is it? 
So briefly, and there's a lot to be said on this, I don't know why you have to quote back from thousands of years ago or you know, certain ex- ex- examples. It's every day. You're allowed to ride on a horse, and a horse is not kosher. You're allowed to benefit from many things. You can't eat it, but you could benefit other ways. We're not talking about, like you said, Yain or Aved Zorah. So how do you explain it? If the spark in it, and we're talking about the language of Tanya. Tanya says in chapter 7, 6 and 7, he talks about klippas. Now there's two types of klippas. Klippas neiga, which means the, the luminescent, or you could say the, the translucent, the klippas. Like a klippa, it's also a shell, meaning it's a husk. The material world is covering up the divine spark, but it's more transparent. Think of it like the peel of a grape. So that's the whole world. That's divrei shus, All neutral matters. Tables, chairs, food, kosher food. Everything that's allowed is not a mitzvah, but it's not forbidden. Isurim, things that are not allowed, that are osur, whether it's orla, or something treif, things that are osur, or treif, or posel, go in the category of sholosh klippas atmeis, three clippers that are in a host that's not there's no light shining in it. Think of it like a, a walnut, a coconut, a husk that is so powerful that you can't see the spark. Think of it like a, a black hole that doesn't allow the light even to escape. The Rebbe Rashab says that the tzitzus became nechshach, so dark, it's like chaticha nasa nevela, like a kosher piece of meat that fell into a pot of unkosher meat. So that becomes like a nevela. You can't separate them anymore. Even though the kosher meat is in there, so that's why it's called Osr Bideach Itzenim. Osr means forbidden, but it also means bound. And it's like in captivity, in hostage, in the forces that are the negative forces. So, to, so the only way you can deal with it is by refraining. When you don't do it, you refrain. You elevate the spark by ignoring it. So some sparks are elevated by engaging with it. And some sparks are, ignored by, by, are elevated by ignoring it because then you ignore the negative so therefore, you're breaking by avoiding and refraining from it, and the spark can be redeemed. There's another scenario. In chapter 7, he continues, what happens if someone, unfortunately, God forbid, did transgress? So then there's the ability of tshuva. So you're not allowed to do that. But once a person is there, the fact that he transgressed, that can create such a deep love for God that's Dainus Nasale Kazachis, Ava, Chuva Ma'ava. Because the deep love that came only because he was in this dark place, which he wasn't allowed to go to initially. But now that you're there, you could return and then you redeem the spark, you actually transform the spark. The clip itself, the negative thing has to be discarded. You cannot say, I'll keep doing the transgression and that will be elevated. No, the transgression has to be thrown away. And Shvirasan Zuitakanosan. And that's its tikkun. But the spark is now elevated because it becomes part. It's like someone who did something wrong. And then from that they learned. So now the spark is feeding the growth and the mitzvahs that they do from here going forward. Or the lessons they've learned from it. Now the scenario that we're talking about. So how do you explain that some things are oser ba'achila but moter ba'hana? The answer is because the Eberster, the same Eberster that said the spark is trapped. He says it's trapped regarding eating it, consuming it. But not trapped, the God be using it. You can ride on a horse. Or you can use a guard dog. And there was actually a dog in front of the Rebbe's house. And you can use it even for good things. You could ride a horse and bring and, 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 and go do a mitzvah with it. Or other things that we do that are 
that the, so how do you explain a spark that so-called it's like Palginan de Bura, he's splitting one part of the spark can be used, one part can be used. So there's a letter from the Rebbe, it's printed in the Hesophis Kadeshim, Chelikid Beis Lukutesichis, and now in Igris Kadesh too, in the Hesophis, in the edition of Lukutesichis, volume 12, where the Rebbe talks about this element of sparks and so on. How you elevate it and so on. Pekoch Nefesh, for example, is another example. We are allowed to eat something not kosher, and that gives you the power. And there's the two Gersoyes and Tanya, Tchuya or Hutra, that allows you to actually elevate the spark. But because Pekoch Nefesh, God gives you the power to be able to go into a dark place and take out the spark because you're using it for the right thing. So that's the brief answer to it. And it's discussed in different letters from the Rebbe as well. Before we conclude, I do want to mention one more thing, being that we're in the last week of the secular year. So I'd like to encourage you, if you haven't done so, to join our Gift of Meaning campaign, end-of-year campaign. Go to giftofmeaning.com and please make a generous contribution this end of the year. If you need a tax deduction, it's an additional incentive to help us support these transformative programs to continue to grow and expand and reach many more people. And I thank you in advance. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.